honor to, uh, to be here. I was bracing myself for Harry's constant uh, accusation of me considering that he was a slow football player. <laughs> he brings that up all the time. And uh, he didn't bring it up today, so maybe he's getting over it. Maybe the, the Bible is starting to get to him a little bit about self-pity. <laughs> but I have to tell this story. It's a true story. Um, some people can think that I'm the same guy, the same Ron Brown, that ran in the 1984 Olympics here in Los Angeles where they, Carl Lewis and all those guys won those gold medals, and Ron Brown was his name. He played at Arizona State. He was a great football player, played in the NFL for a while. And uh, so while I was coaching at Nebraska, I got a phone call live on live rush hour traffic Los Angeles radio. And the guy said, well, we want to do an interview with Ron Brown, and the former Olympic gold medalist is right with us on the air. And it was me. <laughs> well, I tried to interrupt him, but, you know, the guy was just bent on the fact that he had finally caught up with the great Ron Brown, the fast Ron Brown. And so this went on for five minutes. He went through all my accolades, all my gold medals, <laughs> and he almost began to talk me into it. You know, I... I really didn't want to interrupt him after a while. It sounded pretty good. <laughs> but finally, I said, sir, uh, I think you're mistaken. Yeah, I coach football here at Nebraska now, but I'm not that Ron Brown. I'm not the fast Ron Brown. I'm the slow Ron Brown. <laughs> it was silence for 30 seconds. Do you know how long 30 seconds of radio silence is? He was so embarrassed, and he finally shifted over to another topic, and they moved on. But just to, it just goes to show you that sometimes we don't always see the reality of, uh, of what we're supposed to see. Sometimes we get mixed up along the way. I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to make sure you all understood that this is not a just a sports message, and it's not a ratings game. And who's the best convo, uh, con chapel speaker and all that, please come in with the mentality with all your chapel speakers and all of your songs that you are really bent on hearing from God. Because there are times when God is, I've been in New York City taxi cabs with a Muslim cab driver who can barely speak English, knows nothing of the word of God, and God has used that guy to speak something to me about what he wants me to do what he wants, where he wants me to go. So please come in with that mindset because I'm going to share some things that are rather delicate today through my time in the sports world, but they'll, they'll relate to you um, in the world that you live in as well. First of all, I got a tool shed. And there's, there's three ways that I want to kind of decipher through the message today. And uh, this, this, is what, this is what God has given me as tools as I've looked at the world biblically in the last few years. And the first word is, the first tool is extract. And it comes from Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 19. And we won't turn to all of them. I'll just quickly give you just a quick rundown. But Jeremiah, of course, in the middle of the weeping prophet, in the middle of a rebellious nation. And he told, God told Jeremiah, I said, look, man, if you're going to be a spokesman for me, you got to be willing, and it says in the New American Standard Bible, you must be willing to extract the precious from the worthless. 
In other words, you've got to take a set of information and these cultural values that these people have and what the Israelites are saying about me and what they're not saying about me, and you've got to be able to pull that apart and see this is God and this is not. You've got to be able to extract from the word. The second tool is expose, and it's from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, where it says, Do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. With my football players, one of the things that I want to be able to do, I coach football at Liberty University, and with my players, I want to expose them to their sin. I want to show them, and I've done this for years, I want to reveal to them that you say you're a courageous man, but really you have some cowardly aspects of you. You have some fear in you. And I want to expose that fear to them. People say, well, that's awfully mean. No, we should be about setting up a culture where sin can come to the forefront and where you can see it and say, oh, man, that's me. I don't want to live like that. That's how any of you came to Christ. You were able to see your sin at some point and say, I renounce my sin. I repent. But you've got to identify it. And it's got to be exposed by loving Christians who are willing to expose you, not in front of the whole world, for you're a laughingstock, but to you, before the living God. And the third tool is out of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. Exhort. To exhort one another daily. And exhort doesn't just simply mean that I'm going to be a nice guy and I'm just always going to be a cheerleader for somebody. On the football field, you've got to communicate all the time. Watch the pass. Watch the pass on this play. Watch the run fake over here. Hey, hey, step back a few years. You've got to exhort people. Help people get lined up so that they're right where they're supposed to be, living strongly. That's true life, the exhortation. So I wanted to title my message today, The Stewardship of Sinners. The Stewardship of Sinners. What stewardship? That word means manage, management. It's like uh, the custodians of this place here. They steward this place. This place looks clean and there's not stuff all on the floor and somebody's done a nice job of stewarding this building. We all have an area of stewardship in our life. And around us all the time are sinners. There's sinners in the midst of us. We're all, all of us, none of us have sinless perfection. Many of us are rooted in Christ, but sin continually rears its ugly head. And I want to talk about that today. So, God had the audacity to forgive a sinful city called Nineveh back in the day. An evil city. And he asked Jonah to be his steward in that city. Steward the sinners and to reveal to them the living God. And Jonah, nice, good Hebrew boy, said, what's a good little Hebrew boy like me having to do with a place as wicked as Nineveh? I ain't going. Rebellion. And he ran away. And yet God saw fit to get him where he was supposed to go. Eventually, repentance, three days and three nights in the mouth of a fish, spit out right at Nineveh. And he represents how Jesus Christ, three days and three nights in the grave, rose from the dead and became sin for us. 
and it put us in a place right where we should be. How about the audacity that Paul had to call Paul a sinner, consenting to murders and imprisonment of Christians to steward the gospel in such a powerful way across the planet. Jesus poured out his gut in eternal life and fellowship and friendship with Peter. Three power-packed years of walking on this earth with Peter. And yet after all of that, after promising he would never do this, he denies Peter at the crunch time. The key play of the game. Peter has an opportunity to step up to the forefront and be the man he's supposed to be. And he denies Jesus. And then Jesus has the audacity to go after Peter after his resurrection. And in John 21, you can read about how he chased Peter down, restored him, and helped lead Peter to become one of the most courageous men the world's ever known for Christ, eventually to his death. And how about David? God takes him from rags to riches, and yet David does some crazy things. He faked as a crazy man. He cost 80 priests or so their lives because of his fears about the adultery, the murder, the cover-up that went along with it, the passive parenting, the numbering of the troops. You know, almost every one of David's recorded sins in the Old Testament led to people dying. A lot of people died because of David's foolishness and his broken fellowship with the Lord. And yet God had the audacity to keep him as the king all through that time. Never lost his job. And he lived a long life. Jesus showed mercy to uh, an adulterous woman. He convinced the, the people who wanted to stone her to drop their stones and not condemn her. But he didn't. He told her to go and sin no more. And how about the Samaritan woman? who had lived with a few different guys, and the Samaritan woman, the half-breed that you're not supposed to associate with. Jesus showed mercy. And what about that little guy with the little man syndrome running around and climbing a tree, wanting to get his eyes on Jesus, and really kind of the scum of the earth, one of those tax collectors who had gotten rich off of other people, cheated the heck out of people. And yet, Jesus said, hey, I, I want to hang out with you. Come on, Jesus. I mean, this guy rips people off left and right. You want to hang out with that guy? But what struck me one day, and uh, I'll have you turn to this if you have your word, is, is a guy named Manasseh. In 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 9, around that area there, just, just turn with me there. Just take a little a bit at the language, just a little bit. 2 Kings chapter 21. That whole chapter is dedicated to Manasseh, who is the son of a pretty faithful guy named Hezekiah. And I think Manasseh had a, he may have had the longest reign, maybe one of you Bible students know that, maybe the longest reign of kingship of all the kings in Israel. He had 55 years. He was the king of Israel. He was 12 years old when he began to reign. And, uh, he did everything that his dad had set up in Israel to honor the Lord with. He broke it all down. He, he raised up Baal worship, all kinds of groves and high places that dishonored the Lord. 
He was involved in the occult and the psychic world, um, sending children through fire, bloodshed constantly. And as you read just the second king's account, look at verse 9. He says, but they hearkened not. In other words, God was trying to speak not only to Manasseh, but also the people. But because of Manasseh's poor leadership and because of his influence, this wicked king led many into wickedness and many astray. And that verse, that, that word caught me, but they hearkened not. You know, we have wicked leaders in this country. But hopefully, we're not all following those wicked leaders and their pursuits. Hopefully, we are not part of they. Hopefully, there's a delineation between us as followers of Jesus Christ and what even the influential people of the world bring. But in this case, the people seduced, it says Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. But I find it interesting because when you go to 2 Chronicles chapter 33, it's another account of Manasseh, but there's new information. And this is what I'm trying to get to today. The new information in 2 Chronicles 33 talks about the repentance of Manasseh. Because of his sins and because of his wickedness, the king of Assyria came and captured him and dragged him and put through fetters on him and he went through torture. And during that time, he called out to God. After all that wickedness, he finally called out to God. God heard him. Scripture says God was entreated of him. God responded to him. He forgave him as Manasseh repented. <laughs> Not only that, God had the audacity to restore him as king of Israel. And he started to do great things and build an empire that would be honoring to God. I go, man, God, are you kidding you're going to take a wicked guy like this after all he did and you're going to restore him? You know, it, it strikes me because in the world that I live in, God has put me in the world of sports. I'm 60 years old. I've been in football since I was five years old. I, 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 I love ball. I, that's been my life. Yeah, I went to Ivy League schools, got good education, and went here, there, traveled, I played basketball, played other sports. But football is, is, is where it's at. 55 years of football. Manasseh is 55 years as king. But you know, I've learned in my, my world, there's a bunch of us Manassas. There, there, there's a bunch of us. This is a hard topic to bring up in the Super Bowl weekend, but newsflash, National Football League. Recent studies, 80% of the players in the National Football League today are involved in one or more of these three categories. Near bankruptcy, divorce, often related to adultery, pornography, etc., and addiction to some substance, either marijuana, other drugs, or alcohol. <laughs> 80%. The National Football League is going to draw more attention this weekend than any other entity in the world. 
And everybody that I know who plays football wants to be in the National Football League. I'm not here to trash the league. I have a cousin, a, a young cousin who's playing, he's, he's played in the NFL for 12 years or so, playing for the Redskins now. And, and it's been good for him, been good for him in a number of respects. But many of these young men who are stars and players in the NFL have chosen the great riches and all that comes with it and being content with spiritual poverty. I'm asking you all, when you watch the game this weekend, see it through a different pair of lenses. Don't look at these guys as just heroes. Some of them are. Guy like Benjamin Watson for the Baltimore Ravens, loves the Lord, powerful guy in Christ. There are some great Christian coaches, great Christian players in the NFL. I'm not here to tear the league down, but as a culture, it's a wicked empire, let me tell you. you know, I've coached about, uh, I've coached college football for 30 years now, and I, uh, I've had probably about 30 to 40 players who played in the NFL. I've got a few now playing. And uh, I, I realized that it's amazing. I coach at Liberty University now, which is the largest Christian university in the world right now. But most of our football players are not believers. The NFL is far more important and a dream for them than a relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so I've noticed that most of our games are on ESPN. ESPN 3, ESPN 2, ESPN News. Most of our players dream about playing in the, in, the, in the NFL. Most of our players, quite frankly, and most of the players around the country won't even get a sniff in the NFL. They won't come anywhere near it. The NFL won't want them. You have to be at a very high skill level to play in that league. But, you know, we live in a world of worldly dreamers who follow false prophets. And there's false prophets in the sports world, and there's false prophets in the world that you all are, are going to embark on when you graduate from the Master's College. You're going to go into a world where wickedness, the wickedness that we learned through Manasseh and others, is going to continue to grow. And you're going to be called to be a light shining in darkness. And many times, you're going to have to stand alone. And you're going to have to carry the mantle yourself. Many of even your brothers and sisters in Christ will walk away from you. And don't think that that's really a stretch. Because they walked away from Jesus. The disciples fled. His main guy denied him at crunch time. The Apostle Paul was left in prison, and many Christians were happy that he was there. Oh, I want to meet Paul when I go to heaven, I've heard many Christians say. Yeah, but you would have hated him here on earth. Many of us would have been embarrassed of Paul on earth. He was over the top. He was so fired up about Jesus Christ, it wasn't a relative, or just trying to be rele relevant to the culture or user-friendly, Paul said what had to be said. And it wasn't always a nice, fleshy thing. 
John the Baptist. The audacity of John the Baptist to go to Herod and tell him that he was sleeping with the wrong woman. You know what most Christians would have told John the Baptist? Hey, you got a good thing going. You got a ministry going. You've come out of the woods. You came out of nowhere, and, and, and people are following you. How about that? Come on, God's got something good for you. Don't mess it up now. Keep your mouth shut. He was a steward of sinners. John the Baptist wasn't living for himself. He was living for the kingdom of God. And the list goes on and on of these first century heroes who had the guts to speak up and to stand up in the middle of a public square. Even back before, Daniel just got a great job in the Babylonian Empire. Man, he's rising. He's like you getting a job at Wall Street and going to be able to live for Christ or maybe you're in the political realm or maybe you're in the athletic world and you're, man, you're rising and you and they tell you, you need to shut the thing down a little bit. We don't need you to deny your faith, but we want you to take a little off the top. We don't want you praying openly and Daniel, the scripture says, did what he always did. He couldn't be talked out of it. They told him to get off the interstate and take that first exit off. And Daniel said, no, nah, I'm staying right down the interstate. He had the courage to live that way. God set the stage for him. He lived for him. He didn't try to be God himself and play the odds. Most Christians would have told Daniel, keep quiet, man. Don't say anything. You got a good thing going. You're going to represent us. That's what you're going to be told. Who are you going to be? Before you consider your audacity, think about God's audacity to even choose you. Should we be surprised by these NFL stats? I'm going to tell you something. The first protective structure that God gave to man was marriage and the family. You should see the marriages and the families of the young men who just signed their football scholarship papers across the nation to play college football on Wednesday. National Signing Day. We have 15 players sign at Liberty. You should see the family structures of these young men who are coming out of these neighborhoods in these high schools. You should see the discombobulation. You should see the broken families, the divorce, the anger. Yeah, broken marriages, broken relationships, broken families, broken kids. Small wonder, that's what the NFL's getting. But that's what Wall Street's getting. That's what higher education in America is getting. That's what the law profession is getting. That's what the Supreme Court is getting. That's what's being flushed out at the next level. Because we've chosen to break the principle of Matthew 18.6. We've chosen to be in violation. Where Jesus said, if any one of you take this little child and cause this one to be offended by me or to stumble by me, it would be better if you had a millstone hung around your neck and you were dropped to the bottom of the ocean. Some tough words. Tough words, Jesus, about somebody drowning. And that's how passionate he was. The public square today is telling these kids, it doesn't matter. We don't want to hear about Christ in the schools. We don't want to hear about Christ in the open square. And we've caused offense. And many of us Christians, sitting in some of these public places of employment, have decided, well, 
I don't agree with the higher administrations and what they're doing and human resources, etc. But that famous statement, it is what it is. I don't know about you, I'm beginning to hate that phrase. It is what it is. No, it's not. It is what you've allowed it to be. There are f- I did a study about 10 years ago, approximately 41 million youngsters between the ages of 8 and 18 were involved in organized sports in America. 41 million! That's the size of a pretty, pretty good nation. That's a place where you could evangelize. Those ten year, that 10-year window between 8 and 18, imagine the value system and what's being taught and grounded and bloodstreamed in that child through those 10 years of sports. All the influences, all the screaming parents and the screaming coaches, all the flattery and you're the greatest and you don't have to study so hard, we'll get you through. Think about all that during those 10 years. You stink. You're the worst on the team. You'll never be anything. Think about all the definitions of success that we see. And then consider what's get, what gets flushed out after 18 when most of these youngsters will never, ever don the pads or track spikes or the volleyball court ever again. Some of you who are playing sports here at, at uh, Masters or at Liberty where I coach, you're one of the few. There are not many. Most people don't get that privilege. Most people have to retire. So what's being flushed out of the sports world? That's why I believe that God was telling me, Ron, you've got to be a steward for me in this profession. You can't walk around blindfolded with your eyes closed. You've got to be like Daniel, John the Baptist. You've got to be like a Navy SEAL, an eye, a Scud missile for that which is not right. You've got to be willing to extract the precious from the worthless and expose that which is Christ from that which is not and exhort fellow believers in following the kingdom principles through the Word of God and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We hear so much about leadership today. There's so many books. Go into the Christian bookstore and you're going to find tons of books on Christian leadership. I seldom have ever seen a title on Christian followership. You know, that's really where it starts. Following. Following Jesus Christ. That's how we enter in in a relationship with him. We've, just show, we, we've been inspired to follow him. And that always leads to fellowship with him. When you're truly following him, you're going to fellowship with him. I think part of the problem that we have is that we violated another word, integer. And I've taught my daughters this, the word integrity. Um, really, I asked them, I said, girls, when they were little, wh- what does integrity mean? You know, dad, that's kind of a big word. You know, that's when they were real little. So I said, okay, let me give you a hint. When you spell it uppercase I, what number does that I look like? They said, well, that's easy, dad. It's Roman numeral one. I said, yeah, there you go. That's exactly what the word means, one. But not one versus two or one versus 500. It's one as a whole number versus a fraction. One as a whole number cannot be divided. And that's really what integrity means. It means that you cannot be divided. The whole cannot be divided. 
You are who you are in the way you think, in the way you speak, in the way you live. And that's what God has called for us to never become divided. And so as you read through the New Testament and you begin to really study through the principles, and you know this better than anybody in this country because of how you're being trained. There should never be a time in your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ that you break fellowship. But you do. And I do. We see the sin around us all the time from breaking fellowship. From not staying in tune. I spoke to a lot of you athletes last year about breaking fellowship with Christ out on the field. Yeah, you've been studying the word and you know this and you know that. You know a lot of the big words. When you get out on the fields, when you get out on the track, your mind wanders all over the place. And you've lost time and you've lost energy and you've lost the connection with Christ. Which is exactly what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He wants to keep you connected. But you continually break fellowship with him. And so don't I. You know, Jesus never never said he would leave us. In fact, in Matthew 28, 20, every time I stay in a hotel, just about over the years, I've left a little note for the cleanup people. And one of the verses that I've used a lot is Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus said, I will never leave you even to the end of the world. Man, it's just so good to write that down and to see that and to understand that, that he will never leave me. Never. How many times have I left him? Great example. Matthew 14. The disciples are in a boat that's rocking all over the place. And Jesus was up in the mountain and he's looking out and he sees that his boys... He's told them to cross over to the other side. His boys are going through all kinds of stuff in the middle of the night. A scary deal. And they're tired and they're worn out. You've been like that on the athletic field. You've been like that in the classroom. Sometimes you're like that in life. You don't have any more strength. You know, in Mark 6, you get the same story. In Mark 4, Jesus calmed the storm. But in Mark 6 and in Matthew 14, Jesus didn't calm the storm. It was time for him to go to a new level with his disciples. They had to learn that every single time there's a storm in your life, every single time you're around a bunch of sinners and sinful activities, that you're not always going to make a way out. He's not going to just calm the storm. Your way out is going to be your connection with him. So Jesus leaves the mountain, and of course we know the story, he walks on water to go to the boat. (laughs) And as he gets passing them by they notice hey and I'm not sure the disciples even recognize them the Bible says they were afraid I think they probably thought you know what Jesus wouldn't be here in this situation he could just snap his fingers and this storm would calm they were expecting it was going to be handled that way that the circumstances would change but what Jesus wanted them to understand is the circumstances aren't always going to change and sometimes they're going to get worse. You have to be the one to change. You. You're going to have to stay connected. And of course we know this story. He says, hey, don't be afraid. It's me. Did the storm stop then? No. It kept raging. But what happened? Peter said, Lord, since that's you, Allow me to come with you. Great step. 
Great move. That's a great line for you in the midst of tough circumstances in your life. Since that's you, Lord, since I know you're here, since that promise of Matthew 28, 20 is true, I know you're with me. You'll never leave me. I want to come out with you. So he does. Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water because of the power of Jesus. But we all know the story that when he looked around, he sank. And you know, Jesus didn't get back to the boat and say, man, you you came so close, you were doing pretty good. A lot of times people want to make a big issue of walking on water. Well, what's the difference between that and jet skiing, you know? I mean, uh, water skiing. I mean, you're on top of the water. That's not the big thing. The big thing is that he took his eyes off of Jesus at the time. He broke fellowship with him. That's what a lot of you do. A A lot of, all of us do that. And that's why we have such up and down lives. Can you remain constant? And do you understand that that is a big sin? I want to I want to close here as we get to the finish line here. I want to remind you that God hates I think the idea of people looking at broken down walls and saying, "Well, it is what it is. There's nothing I can do." I think God really is dishonored when we break our fellowship with him and we're not able to keenly observe every situation and every brick laying and mess. I think that's what happened with Nehemiah. I think he told, he wanted to tell his, his family back in Jerusalem, you know what? You can't just walk around with, with rubble all over the place and think that that's good. I think God wants you to look into your world and see the broken down walls in the world of, of uh, fashion design or in banks, or in law, or in media, or whatever field you go into. I think God wants you to see the broken down walls and not, and not have you say, well, it is what it is. And so God did that to me. In my stewardship of sports, I ran into a man named Jerry Sandusky. Usually when I mention that name, Not all people quite know, but they've kind of heard that name. Jerry Sandusky. Jerry Sandusky. The former Penn State defensive coordinator. When I was at Nebraska, we played Penn State a number of years. And and I had worked at Penn State camp, and Jerry Jerry, uh, Sandusky headed up those camps. Joe Paterno was the head coach, and for many years, and Jerry was his defensive coordinator. He ran the high school football camps, and he did all the public relations stuff. This man right here was the the talk of the town. He was a loved guy. In fact, people would always say that Joe Paterno is the most respected man in Pennsylvania, but Jerry Sandusky is the most loved. He had an incredible reputation. He built a, a camp called the Second Mile. And I remember when I was at Nebraska, I called up Jerry Sandusky a, a couple times and said, hey, tell me about your second mile. I'm trying to establish, you know, camp, Christian camp for kids here in Nebraska and to tell me all the stuff you went through and so forth. And he was always very gracious to me. And then, of course, in 2011, in November, Wednesday, I'm coaching at Nebraska. We're getting ready to play Penn State at State College, Pennsylvania, in front of 107,000 people. Big game. The winner of this game gets the lead in the Big Ten Conference. Huge game. 
So on that Wednesday, as we're getting prepared for the game, all of this stuff hits. Jerry Sandusky, the crimes, the rapes of young boys, the wickedness, Manasseh-like wickedness, horrifying stuff that's come out. They take Sandusky to prison in his 70s now. They fire Joe Paterno and most of, the, most of the administration. I'm surprised they even decided that they wanted to play a game. But we flew to Penn State and I was thinking, why, Lord? Why Nebraska? Why us? Why are we here for this game? This is strange. There were bomb threats for the Saturday game that we were to play. Students were in upheaval. The world's press was all there. They had soldiers on top of the stadium with bayonets and guns. They had German shepherds sniffing all our luggage. There were all kinds of threats of people being hurt physically over this whole issue of paternal being fired. And that was the man. If you go on and Google him up, his name up, you'll see some rotten, rotten stuff about him. So, Friday night, I'm in my hotel room thinking about how this game's going to go and all the distractions and all the stuff out there. And I remember getting a phone call from the administration from Penn State and Nebraska asking me to lead a prayer in the middle of the field before the game. A mandatory prayer. What about the ACLU? What about all those people that I've been in trouble with all these years? <laughs> Big Mouth Brown, the, the Christian Big Mouth, who's always getting in trouble for his faith, and you're asking me now to pray because they realized the nation was watching. And they didn't know what to do. So I got together with uh, Larry Johnson, who was the defensive line coach at Penn State at the time, knowing he was a Christian. I said, Larry, man, let's, let's do this thing together. Both teams came out before the game. We prayed. And uh, I've never heard 107,000 people get stone quiet. It's like you could hear my voice through the whole stadium. The place was packed. Cameras everywhere. We went on and got up from that prayer and went and played the game. After the game, I spoke. The media had me, and they wanted to know, tell us what you were praying about. Tell us what your prayers had to do with this game. Tell us about the situation. And I preached the gospel for 45 minutes to the media. I just wore them out. Wore them out. <laughs> well, We got tons of email accolades. What a great thing to do. You know, wow, blah, blah. You know, all of this. National media. And then the Holy Spirit began to speak to me. And he probably was always speaking to me. But I was caught up in the grandeur of it. And I was caught up in, yeah, that was a cool thing. Wow, look what God did. But I lost sight of Jesus while walking on the water. And I began to sink into the miry waters of, we did a good thing. 
No thought about Jerry Sandusky. So Jerry, Jerry Sandusky in prison. If we can go back to that shot. Jerry. That's a completely different scene than what we just saw. But we're celebrating and being congratulated for being, quote, good Christians. But the reality of it, it was, who reaches that man? I was friends with that guy. For five years, nothing from me. And then the Lord spoke to me in my heart as I was studying the scriptures and said, what about him? And I realized that I had considered myself a Jonah. Ah, I ain't touching that guy. Kidding? If the media ever finds out that I'm going to hang out with this guy and trying to reach him, do you realize they'll crucify me? They'll crucify anybody around me. They will have a field day with that. But then I thought about Jesus and who he hung with. And I thought about the audacity of God of giving Manasseh and David another shot at it. Is Jerry Sandusky too far gone? Is Jerry Sandusky not part of John 3.16 for God so loved the world? Is Jerry Sandusky part of that equation? Or is he, is he really the most hated villain in American sports history? What does Jesus think of him? What do you think of him? And then I came up with the phrase, you are Jerry Sandusky, and so am I. Oh, that doesn't sound so nice. Let me say it another way. I am Jerry Sandusky, and so are you. We are. I don't know what he did and what he didn't. That's not my job, really. My job is to show him the reality of Jesus Christ. So I've reached out to him. I've been reaching out to him. And God's been opening doors. And I only bring this up, <laughs> not to make myself look like I'm sound a, a good guy. In my failure, in my selfishness, in my arrogance, like Jonah, I thought, nah, I've never done anything like that. But let me tell you, honestly, before I became a Christian, I've had some rotten sins. You know what? Since I've become a Christian, I've had some rotten sins. I bet you have too. So I, uh, I want to close with... Uh, portion of scripture here just to, to seal it. And it's in uh, Luke chapter 18. It's very familiar. Verses 9 through 14. It's a parable. And of course Jesus' parable, something that comes alongside a story, a, a, an event, or something that comes alongside of the truth to help make it clear. And the clarity that Jesus was trying to do with, with, with many parables, as we know, wasn't just to get people on board. It was to delineate them. It was to make it clear that the people who were hardened would get even harder, and the people who were softened by the message of the gospel would even get softened. So it says here, and I got King Jimmy, so bear with me. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, and they that were righteous and despised others. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up so much his eyes into heaven, but he smote upon his breast. Lord, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. So, where are you? Who are you? The tax collector? The Pharisee? You're probably both. Who's your identity? Who are the people in your world that God's going to drop you into when you leave here? The people in your world, the untouchables, the Jerry Sanduskies of the world. Who are those people in your life? I want you to think about this. The stewardship of sinners. You've been given talents for a reason. Skills and abilities and opportunities so that when you get out of here, you are faithful with that skill set that you've been given to live faithfully with God, to reveal to the world the mighty kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the person of Christ. And to do that well, you have to grow. You have to be able to take the word of God, decipher through it, and apply it and live it out in the world that you live in. And God will continually take you to great and mighty places for him in the lowest echelons of this earth. And you will deal with some of the most wicked people on the planet. But it's you that God has called the steward, the sinner. Will you dedicate your life to that, masters? Will you be the fresh fragrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the life of Jerry Sandusky? Sanduskies of your world. I am Jerry Sandusky, and so are you. Let's pray. Father, I'm humbled uh, by your grace and your mercy, the privilege we have here at Masters to enjoy you. It started the day that we recognize at some point in our life that we were lost in our sin. Lord, you found us just as I was adopted in the natural. <laughs> you adopted all of us who know you as Savior and Lord and brought us out of the sinful orphanage of life and into your heavenly kingdom where we get to enjoy you forever. But Lord, we're here on a rescue mission we're called into areas of stewardship. And for me, it's the sports world, and you know the life of everyone here. And Father, for us to even see clearly, we must be students of unbroken fellowship with you. The continual connection of not being a double-minded man, 
staying in the word, applying the word, being doers of the word, not just hearers only. That we're not bought off by the merchandise of this world, God. Whatever the NFL is in the life that we live, that we don't get bought off by the dimes, the nickels, the noses, but rather you, you only, Lord. And I believe that will lead us right into the midst of King Herod's and Caesar's and Pontius Pilate's and the leaders of our time and the Jerry Sanduskys of the world, Lord, the Ron Browns of the world that you brought the Harry Walls into to help show him the reality of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be students of that, God, and that we would be excellent in following and in fellowshipping and then use us in the leadership that you call us to live. Love you, Lord. Thank you for this school. Thank you for the church out of Greenville.